What a time to be number one in Cotter, Walter. At some point over the last week, we're the number one news and politics podcast in Cotter. What does that mean, do you think? Well, I hope it means that the Friends of Peace are playing, paying close attention to what they hear on this podcast, Jeremy. <laughs> I don't know if Ismail Hania himself is listening, but maybe some of his uh, handlers are. Well, if they are, hello to all our friends in Qatar, and I hope you're having a wonderful day. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist at The Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's start with this week's news. First story of the week. President Biden's summit with Xi Jinping in San Francisco this week grabbed all the headlines, but just two days before, in a White House meeting between Biden and the President of Indonesia, The U.S. and Indonesia announced a new defense cooperation agreement. The deal is part of a broader agreement that will see the two countries work together on peacekeeping efforts and counterterrorism programs and is part of Washington's efforts to counter Chinese influence across the Indo-Pacific. The agreement with Indonesia follows a defense cooperation agreement signed between the U.S. and Papua New Guinea in August and a new comprehensive strategic partnership between the U.S. and Vietnam in September. Walter, news or phone news? I think it's a little bit hyped. It's not completely faux, but it's somewhat hyped. For example, I think I know in uh, Vietnam also has a comprehensive strategic partnership with China. I think Indonesia has a comprehensive. You know, these are like airline frequent flyer miles. You know, if you you know everybody gets some. Uh, they're not you know they're not some kind of statement of alignment. Indonesia is resolutely determined not to be caught on either side of this U.S.-China thing. I would say that on the whole, they are, you know, they are worried. China has territorial claims against them in the South China Sea. And this, by the way, tells you how extreme and radical those claims are because Indonesia is not close to mainland China by any stretch of the imagination. And and I would suggest that our listeners might want to go get out an you know Google nine dash line and see just how far you have to go down for China to be in Indonesia's backyard. But they are, and so ch- the U.S. and Indonesia have had joint drills and things like that. But at the same time, Indonesia has absolutely no intention of lining up against China in any way. China is too important for Indonesia economically. In many ways, Indonesia and the U.S. have had a bit of a rocky relationship. And while I haven't been in Indonesia in a couple of years, the last time I was there, everybody was kind of filling my ear with, look, when our president goes to Beijing, they roll out the red carpet. It's a big deal. Indonesia has a lot of people. It is the most populous Muslim country in the world. I think after India, it is the second largest democratic or arguably democratic country in the world, and it occupies vital sea lanes. It has tremendous natural resources. It's also an incredibly lovely country, and although some people are going to get mad at me about this, it probably has the best durian in the world. Uh, and uh, I, I, I feel we, we maybe have to brace ourselves for some incoming on that one, Jeremy. Yeah, I can hear our listeners in China unsubscribing as we speak. <laughs> Anyway, um, but they feel like, you know, they come over here and the president of Indonesia is not a rock star when he comes to Washington. He should be. And 
I think that the Biden administration is doing a better job on this. They're doing more. They've certainly we've, we've we've done a lot of visiting. We have, you need to cultivate Indonesia, but we're not going to bring it from column A to column B. It's not in it's not in China's camp. It's not in ours. Absolutely, it, it, it plans to go on. So this is nice. I'm happy we have it. It does not change the direction of history. All right, our second story. UPS just opened its largest warehouse, a sweeping 20-acre facility on the outskirts of Louisville, Kentucky. But, writes Bloomberg, don't expect the break room to get too crowded. The package handling giant plans to fill the $80 million facility with more than 3,000 robots by the end of next year to reduce the need for manual labor. That level of automation means UPS can run the warehouse with only about 200 workers. It's a linchpin of our strategy, said the company's head of supply chain solutions. It's important to be able to deliver best-in-class cost and best-in-class service for your customers, close quote. Walter, news or phone news? I would say continuation of existing trend. I'm sure that uh, many of our listeners live in cities and you go to any checkout counter in a drugstore in a, in a city, and there's nobody there. More and more, we're doing our own checkout. And even though those ex- machines are kind of expensive, there's some dangers of shoplifting associated with them and so on. Between um, benefits and, and rising minimum wages, it's no longer economical to, to use human labor there. Now, in the great scheme of things, that's fantastic. Actually being a clerk in a warehouse or checkout clerk in a drugstore, this is not the best use of a human being whose soul was made individually by God and sent into the world to be a blessing to everyone. Um, and you know, this is not a great use to, to, to put that person to. And it's wonderful and liberating for humanity that there's less and less of that in the future. But if you happen to be someone without a lot of skills or someone looking for a quick job in in a city, these are the jobs that can work for you and be steady long-term jobs. So when I hear about minimum wage increases, and I mean, I certainly don't have any problem with people at the low end of the pay scale getting more. I hope they all do. I hope we all do. But I think of these sometimes as robot subsidy acts, and we are we are regulating ourselves toward the development of high-tech robotics. Arguably, that's good industrial policy, but somehow I think that's not necessarily going to, it's going to go over that way with the people whose jobs are disappearing. All right. Final story of the week. Turkish President Tayyip Recep Erdogan said on Wednesday that Israel is a, quote, terror state committing war crimes and violating international law in Gaza, sharpening his repeated criticism of Israeli leaders and their backers in the West. Speaking two days before a planned visit to Germany to meet Chancellor Olaf Scholz, Erdogan said Israel's military campaign against Palestinian militant group Hamas included, quote, the most treacherous attacks in human history with unlimited support from the West. He called for Israeli leaders to be tried for war crimes, according to Reuters, and repeated his view and the official position of the Turkish government, at least as of today, that Hamas is not a terrorist organization, but a political party with democratic legitimacy. News or phone news? If anybody else said it, it would be more newsworthy than if Erdogan said it. But (laughs) Erdogan has long been sympathetic to Hamas. Some listeners may remember some years ago, Turkey sent a flotilla to Gaza 
and the Israeli Navy intercepted it. Some of the people on the flotilla were killed. Uh, became a huge diplomatic incident. There had been some hope that Turkey and Israel would come closer together. There had been a bit of a diplomatic thaw. I sometimes think that President Erdogan actually believes that, quote, the Jews control world finance. And his thaw came at a time when the Turkish economy was in trouble, the, the, the currency was going down. Erdogan may have thought that, boy, if I make it up with the Jews, um, the Jews, then uh, you know they'll let up on my on my currency and the economy. The space lasers won't be coming down on my my economy anymore. And then when that didn't happen, that may actually be. Now I don't know. I you know I've I've met him a couple of times, but I can't say we've had long, close, personal discussions. But this is the kind of way that sometimes people react that they have preconceived ideas about Jewish power, how it's exercised, the relationship of Israel to things like international financial markets. And sometimes these people will do things that are kind of pro-Israel operating on those beliefs, and sometimes they do things that are anti-Israel. But I would also, I would just not dismiss the reality that President Erdogan sees himself in many ways as the captain of Team Sunni, uh, that just as the Ottoman sultans for centuries were the most powerful Sunni rulers and saw themselves as maintaining the frontiers of Islam, I think President Erdogan sees himself as, as an heir to that legacy, particularly now that the Saudis seem to be less hostile to Israel. This is an element of legitimacy. It's a way that Erdogan can reemerge as a kind of pan-Islamic figure. He had been, his prestige was badly dented when the Muslim Brotherhood, of which Hamas is a member and which he backs, was thrown out of power in Egypt when the Gulf states really resolutely turned against it. That was not great for him. And he may be hoping that through this surge of violence, that he hopes will catalyze a broader reaction. There's that. And it may also be he's vying for Hamas's allegiance against Iran, that Turkey does not actually want to see Iran be the sole beneficiary of the axis of resistance, and that there's competition for captain of Team Islam, and Erdogan does not want to cede the field to Iran too lightly. So as far as I can see, there are a lot of forces plus Turkish public opinion, which we should never underestimate. A lot of reasons that would drive him in this direction. I'm not happy to see it, but I'm not. I can't tell you that I'm surprised. All right. That does it for the news this week, but it's a perfect segue into the big conversation. So speaking of space lasers and control of international banking and so forth, we've touched a bit in past episodes, Walter, on the elaborate conspiracy theories about the supposedly outsized power and influence of the Jewish lobby over American foreign policy, which is naturally enough making the rounds again, even among some otherwise very smart people. But in Ark of a Covenant, you talk about how U.S. support for Israel really comes from a combination of kind of basic popular political and also strategic considerations that no administration can ignore, lobby or no lobby. 
So without having to start at the very beginning again and reach all the way back to the 19th century again, like I keep making you do it week after week, let's stick with the Biden administration. What are Biden's geopolitical goals and what are the domestic political considerations and constraints that shape his decisions on Israel policy? And how much of this can or can't be explained by reference to, you know, AIPAC? I think AIPAC has very little influence over the substance of Biden's policy. I think it is strategic calculation. It has more to do with signaling and also, well, we'll we'll get into it. But I think President Biden came into office really wanting to be the third term of of the Obama administration and Middle East policy. That is, President Obama looked at the world. He said, uh, we've got trouble in China. We need to, quote, pivot to Asia. Uh, we've got all of these resources in the Middle East, particularly after the failure of the Arab Spring, when it looked as if, you know, the United States can't help them democratize. Where there's no, We can't do anything positive there. Uh, it's, a, it's a suck for uh, our energy and our resources. Let's get out. How do we get out? We try to minimize the prospect of a U.S. war in the Middle East. What's the way, what is the big thing that could drag us into war? It would be in some way connected to the Iranian nuclear program that Israel might feel as the Iranians approach a nuclear bomb. Israel might feel the need to attack Iran. That would set off a war, and we might have a very hard time staying out of it, both because of our support for Israel and also because Iran might well lash out attacking American facilities and so on in ways that would force us in. So that's why the JCPOA, and then Trump got out of it. Trump's idea was different. It's let's work with Saudi Arabia and Israel and the other Gulf states to create a front that will maximally pressure Iran and ultimately maybe there's the threat that military action, not American military action, but Saudi and Israeli and other, or Israeli action with Saudi support or however it works, could deal with the question. So two sort of, really not even two Israel theories, but two Iran theories are driving this. And Biden comes back and says, no, that that was a terrible mistake that Trump did. Iran is now closer to the bomb than before. Everything is worse. And he believed that he would be able to re-enter the JCPOA, the nuclear deal with the Iranians, was somewhat shocked to discover that they were not so interested. Then I think we have a period of of reflection by the Biden administration. The, The Iranians are getting closer to the bomb. That's dangerous. There's a realization that at some point, they could get close enough to a bomb that Israel would, would just act regardless of what the U.S. wanted or the pressure to help Israel would be irresistible. So what do you do about that? You basically continue trying to reach out to Iran because you don't want a confrontation with Iran, but you also try to, in, instead of discarding the Abraham Accords that Trump did because they were Trumps and because they didn't give the Palestinians everything that you thought the Palestinians should have and you think is necessary, you, okay, fine, we're going to go back in, we're going to try to bring the Saudis in, and now we're going to create what Trump sort of saw as an offensive alliance of Saudi Arabia and Israel that overlooked the Palestinians to attack Iran, potentially, 
maybe we'll make it a defensive alliance that helps the Palestinians and isn't about attacking Iran, but making it more difficult for Iran to attack anybody else. And with the talk about Article 5 tight level of protection by the U.S. and maybe an Iranian civil nuclear program, enough reassurance to our allies in the region that even if the Iranians got the bomb, that doesn't necessarily trigger a war. After all, Russia's had a bomb since the 1940s, and we haven't had or didn't until quite recently have a war in Europe, etc. So all of this, I think, is the thinking that, that's that been going on in the Biden administration, and it is fundamentally based on cold strategic calculation. You could say it's a pro-Israel strategy by trying to protect Israel from Iran, but you could also say, no, actually, it's trying to protect America from getting sucked into another Middle East war. So I think that's where we were. I think where the Biden people probably, what they didn't see coming and didn't think enough about were that there are other countries out there that don't want this plan to succeed. Like We have a plan. It's a good plan. It will make us happy and our allies happy. Turns out, though, there are other people there's, there's another player at the chessboard who actually wants to wreck and disrupt the things that we want to accomplish. In this case, there are two people, two, two players. One is Russia that would love, love to see the United States distracted. I actually wrote a piece about this back in February in the journal saying that, that Putin might, people think Putin's escalation would be nuclear in Ukraine. No, it might be trying to stir up a war in the Middle East in the hope that that might raise oil prices, would distract us. Do we help Ukraine? Do we help Israel? What are we going to do with Taiwan? All of the things that actually we're talking about now. Uh, so this, there's, this is a complete plus, plus, plus chef's kiss event for Putin. But also the Iranians don't want the United States to just succeed in pushing them to the margins of the Middle East by building this connection between Saudi Arabia and Israel, economic development, stability. And I think the idea, too, is that from the beginning, that the Biden people and the Saudi people were, were somewhat more interested in than this current Israeli government was that, all right, the Palestinians, you, you can't just ignore them. But the Saudis have zero confidence in Palestinian political leadership, less than zero. They consider Hamas a bunch of death cult, idiot fools, terrorists, murderers, all of those things who are just, um, and in the pay of Iran to boot, absolute useless in the first Gaza war under the Obama administration, the Saudis were quietly hoping that Israel would really pound them flat. I, I don't think their calculations have changed this time around. But they also consider the West Bank Fatah leadership to be the as horrible. You know, corrupt is not that bad if you're also competent. But what they see is that this leadership over decades has ossified into this kind of sterile, utter incompetence, utter corruption. It's, from the Saudi point of view, hopeless. And in a sense, the Saudis see what the Israelis see. There's no partner for peace. There's no Palestinian entity that is strong enough and, and, and self-confident enough to enter into a serious agreement with the Israelis that the Israelis could be sure that it wouldn't just get overthrown by Hamas tomorrow. 
So there's a sense, okay, fine, that the, the Saudis and other Gulf Arabs could recruit among Palestinians, prepare, equip, fund a, a, a generation of leadership that could make something happen and open a pathway uh, to a two-state solution of some kind at some point. All right, I think that's, that's what the Biden administration wants. From the Biden administration's point of view, that's a pro-Israel position because it will make Israel safer from a lot of people on the right in Israeli politics. That's the most diabolical anti-Israel plot anybody could possibly you know, conceive of. All right, whether, whatever it is, however you want to characterize it, it represents both the Saudi national interest and the American national interest. We just, you know, sometimes America in the Middle East is a little bit like the parent in a car where the two kids are squabbling in the back seat. And Jeremy, you are going to learn a lot more about this in the future with your two kids. And they're fighting back there. And each one is saying the other one started. And basically the parent classic turn, I don't care which one of you started it. I want it to stop right now. Um, and that is that is pretty much the kind of default position that a lot of a lot of Americans take toward these things. So the Iranians were trying to disrupt that. So far, they haven't succeeded. Uh, we don't know really. You know, as the war continues, as casualties mount, as unpredictable things happen, Iran acts, Turkey acts, Hezbollah acts or doesn't act. The politics in the U.S. move in different directions. We don't know how this is going to work out. But so far, I would say, it has increased the sense in the Arab world, the Gulf Arab world, and Egypt as well, government, not not popular opinion necessarily, that something has to be done to settle this. It's not about driving Israel back, the Israelis back into the sea, you know, river to the sea, that's not going to happen. But they don't want crazy nut job terrorists in the pay of Iran, that's how they see them, to have the ability at any moment to turn their region into an inferno. This is unacceptable. And they absolutely share an interest in, with Israel in making this stop. Now, how that's going to go, I can't tell you. All right, that does it for the big conversation. Let's end on the tip of the week. It's Thanksgiving next week, Walter, and usually for every major American holiday, July 4th, Christmas, New Year's, Veterans Day, MLK, there's just a, a great body of literature and music and film that we can recommend to our listeners to enjoy over their holiday. But if I try to think about, you know, the great American Thanksgiving song or story or even movie, I mean, I come up a little empty. So what do you say? What's your tip of the week for Thanksgiving? Well, first, I really do want to urge our listeners to use this time to reconnect with the virtue of gratitude. There's almost nothing in this life that can make you feel better than practicing the virtue of gratitude. Uh, people talk about making a gratitude list, all the things in your life that you're thankful for. It is so easy to destroy your happiness by spending your time 
you know, sort of you stick your head out the window and look up and see all the people living on a higher floor than you. You never actually look down and see all the people living on a lower floor. There will always be somebody who has more money than you. There will always be somebody who's better looking than you. Not me, maybe, but you. (laughs) There will always be somebody who's more popular, who's better at this, who's better at that. It's just the way things are. If you're in the 99th percentile, I think that means there's 80 million people better than you. You know, and and so you can consume your 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 life in bitterness, regret, envy, and instead of that, just start thinking about the things in your life that are great your 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 friends, your family, your relationships, the talents and skills that you have, the professional options that you have. The fact that you're, if you're an American citizen, that blue passport gets you in almost everywhere in the world, all kinds of things. And just sometimes it's good to just get up in the morning and make the li- run down the list. So be grateful. Use Thanksgiving as a time to give thanks. Uh, but I would also suggest um, there is great music maybe the one the the music that i plan to be listening to during all of this is a bach cantata nun danket alla gott it is bwv 192 in his catalog and it is a beautiful song that's you know now thank we all our god is the the translation you can get the translation of the lyrics and listen to this beautiful music of how our earthly blessings are only a small part of the of the blessings that we receive. Thanksgiving is I'm really glad we have a Thanksgiving holiday. That's one of the things that Americans get right. It's not about a turkey coma, though I have no objection. And by the way, if you haven't had my sister's beef wellington, you don't know what sister-in-law's beef wellington, you don't know what Thanksgiving should be. But enjoy it. Be grateful. It is a wonderful holiday. All right. There you have it. And that's 20 episodes of What Really Matters in the book. So thank you very much to our lovely and enthusiastic listeners. Thanks especially to everyone who's rated the show and left a review on Apple Podcasts. Please do so if you haven't already. We're off next week for the holiday, but we'll see you for episode 21 on December 1st. Thanks to our producer, Noam Bloom and Will Cummings at Hudson. Thanks to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you next time.